We're on the edge of the 76 FIM Motorcycling Grand Prix World Championship, the 75th year of MotoGP, as our shiny new passes remind us. And on this Paddock Pass podcast, we'll be chatting over the five narratives to emerge from the second and final test in Qatar, as well as the pre-season generally. We've also got a comprehensive interview with Chris Hillard from Alpine Stars about some of the history and the whys and wherefores of airbag technology. As ever, I'm Adam Wheeler and joined, as usual, by the searing font of knowledge and wisdom that is David Emmett. It would be lovely if all those smarts were for anything actually useful. And of course, uh, Neil Morrison, um, the tallest journalist in MotoGP, but a man who can still do back-to-back flyaway Grand Prix with only hand luggage. Uh, Dave, after all that's happened, are you thinking of maybe swapping your BMW GS for a Multistrada or, or something in of, from Ducati's portfolio? I well, I tell you, uh, uh, when I was looking at the GS, I was actually looking at the Multistrada as well. Um, but the thing is, it's got a chain, and I didn't. Uh, I was I'm just too lazy for chains. Um, and also, I think the 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 fuel economy is a little bit lower. But they, you know, like I keep reading reviews of them. They're lovely bikes. They are great. They they've caught up the BMW just like they've caught up uh, pretty much uh, everything else. Um, I would just like to say that uh, Neil is now only the tallest um, uh, journalist in MotoGP because uh, our um, friend Gunter Wiesinger has, um, has, <laughs> has decided to retire. But otherwise, it would have been a closer on thing. Unless Neil is now really offended because he thinks that he's taller than Gunter. Yeah, I had a few, I had a few centimeters on him. Ooh. Yeah, poor Neil. He's no, he's not going to have any more like eye level conversations in the MotoGP paddock. He's always going to be looking down on someone. So there we go, figuratively <laughs> and literally, of course. <laughs> yeah, no, no, exactly, no change there. Uh, Neil, how serious is the Alpine Stars MotoGP Fantasy League competition going to be between you and Steve this year? I'm curious to know. And uh, has there actually been any money laid on the table between the Irishmen? Well, now that it's called the Alpine Stars Paddock Pass Podcast Fantasy League, I'd, I'm going to be taking it more seriously than ever because it's been given a level of prestige that I don't think it had before. So, yeah, you can bet your bottom dollar that um, money has been put on the table between Steve and I and uh, possibly even more between uh, you guys because I, I see some easy competition ahead of me. Goodness, Dave. He might be opening that dusty wallet for once. We got a chance to actually take some money from him. <laughs> Um, back on the subject of the BMWs, actually, I mean, if Toprak keeps looking in fast form in Phillip Island, that could be very promising for the Germans. I mean, that's some long overdue, you know, race success coming from from that, you know, that project in that particular series. So, uh, yeah, it'd be good to see if, um, you know, that that bike can make inroads into to World Superbike result sheets. Um, as I've just got back from Qatar, uh, you know, only two weeks before flying back there again. And uh, the LaSalle International Circuit still impresses me, um, both in terms of the scope and also sort of the flamboyance of the project. Uh, just to quickly summarize the two-day test for everybody, the world champion topped the time screens again. Around 10 riders were under Luca Marini's 2023 lap record set last November when Qatar hosted the penultimate uh, round of the championship instead of its usual role as the opener. Almost everyone was under the fastest lap of 2023, which was set by Nea Bastianini. So se- uh, speeds have seriously increased and the fad for flipping lap records has carried over from Sepang. Uh, promising signs also for Aprilia and KTM as they try to take the fight to Ducati. Uh, we'll get into this and more, but first our friends at Renthal have a plethora of tried and race tested accessories for your street bike. 
as we like to remind you, the company are not just masters of off-road parts and upgrades. Have a quick look, even out of curiosity, at rental.com for bars, chains, grips, levers, and even more. A reminder also that if you like the podcast, then why not become a Paddock Insider by joining us on Patreon. For a small fee each month, you'll get loads of more content. In particular, our Paddock Note shows, which are quick daily roundups from each and every day at a MojoGP event. Uh, Steve English, as we've just said, is currently in Australia readying for the launch of World Superbike, and both him and Gordon Ritchie have put together our first ever print special that features loads of preview content for the 2024 series. It's especially made for Patreon, and we hope it will catch uh, on, and we can crank, crank out a few more versions for MotoGP and maybe even some MXGP or SMX material this year. Have a read, uh, have a listen uh, on Patreon, and let us know what you think. Right, listen, that's enough from me. Let's get into the, the top sort of five topics or storylines that emerge from the Qatar test. The first one I'm going to throw at you. Uh, Dave, uh, your thoughts first. Is it hard to remember a more convincing preseason favourite than Peko Bagnaya? Yeah, I mean, I was going back and looking at what um, Mark Marquez did in the past. Uh, I was remembering 2014 and sort of the start of the 2014 season when he won uh, 10 in a row. But even then, uh, Mark managed to uh, break, I think, his either an arm or a leg before the uh, in a training accident. So he missed one of the tests. Um, he was, you know, Sepang won. He was incredibly fast. Um he didn't look like he was going to be this dominant. Uh, yeah, it, it, going to 2019, and it was Ducatis all over the place. You know, the, it was really the Ducatis who looked strongest. Um, and it wasn't until sort of Mark got going uh, that we actually got to the season that, that, that Mark Marcus actually started taking control. So, no, I mean, this is... Um, it's very reminiscent of well, it's not reminiscent of anything. I mean, it's sort of reminiscent of the old days when they, if you weren't on a factory Honda or a factory Yamaha, you didn't stand a chance. Um, the Ducati were looking very good, and Aya Bastinini looking very good. But Pekka Bagnaia is just exuding absolute calm, serenity, and confidence. Really, so it's he's just looking unstoppable. Neil, two lap records, um, bike modifications. He said that it's complete. There's no more work to be done. He didn't have any kind of issues, any nothing major in terms of the technical side. Uh, he's fully fit. Uh, he has a half a decade now on on you know GP machinery from Bologna, and you know he must be on the verge of confirming you what would assume would be a multi year contract um, with a factory. Uh, it's hard to imagine how things could um, look any better for him. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think just um, the fact that he's not just won a second championship, that's obviously a very difficult thing to do. I think the manner in which he won it, the fact that he beat someone who was on the same bike as him in conditions which were kind of against him, really, when we think about what it was like about four or five races to go. Um, you know, I think that sort of event just gives you like such a, a massive level of, of confidence, a confidence boost. Um, and yeah, it, it does help that it looks as though the Ducati GP24 has taken a step forward um, on uh, on the 23 machine. Um, yeah, and Peko's just, you know, he's part of the furniture there. Like he is just, the, he's kind of tailor-made for that uh, factory Ducati team. Um, and yeah. It's not just that he's beaten a couple of lap records ad. I think it's the fact that he demolished the lap record in Sepang by eight tenths of a second, uh, was over eight tenths second, eight tenths of a second faster uh, on the final day in Qatar uh, than the previous lap record as well. Um, I mean, it's not just like he's going faster. He's going 
massive amounts faster, um, and uh, and it bodes well. But I, w- I would say that, yeah, he's you know he's my favourite going into this year. But I'm, I don't think we're looking at a guy that's going to be clearing off and winning every race by an absolute stretch. I do think he's going to have quite a lot of competition. I don't think it's going to be easy this year for him, um, and I don't think you know any watching fans should be a little put off by the fact that Pecco and Ducati have dominated the preseason. I mean, I think that. Um, I don't think personally that's an indicator that he's going to win the first 10 races, for example. Yeah, I mean, the Pekka was saying that what he felt that the bike was, it had the best of the 22, of the GP22 and the best parts of the GP23 sort of combined, which made it better. And the only comment that I really have is that um, it's all very well as talking up Pekka Banyaya, and it's absolutely the rational thing to do um, because he has looked so confident, but, you know, as Nicky Hayden said, this is why you go racing. This is why you line up on Sunday. You never know what's going to happen. Um, everyone has a plan until they get punched in the face. So let's see what happens. It isn't a foregone conclusion. Uh, things will happen. Um, we don't know what will happen. But you would have to think, you know, looking at what's happened so far, that over the course of a season, uh, Pekka Banyaya is sitting in a very, very comfortable place indeed. Yeah, and Bagnaia, I think, uh, cited the mistakes and errors he made last year, Dave. For example, if we look at Cotta in Texas, if we look at Le Mans, that was a situation that, you know, he couldn't really avoid with Maverick Unialis. And those are racing incidents, like you say. It means a championship's not always going to be a given thing, unless you're Max Verstappen in Formula One and just taking part in a ball fest. But, you know, I think Bagnaia's people will look at the, the speed in Sepang, uh, and try to find almost reasons or excuses for it. You know, how was the track conditions? Uh, how was the surface? Um, you know, what's going on? I think Mitchell were also asking more riders to test a new 25 front. I think Jack Miller was one of the riders that experimented with it in Qatar. Um, and of course, you know, the new aero package that Ducati have brought, there are little incremental gains that have been made. But uh, I, I think it's just a case of the, the Bagnaia Ducati package maturing. And, um, you know, maybe finally beating Jorge Martin last year was a big boost to his confidence. You can imagine if Mark Marquez doesn't produce any outstanding results for the first half of the season, then Bagnaia's momentum is just going to fly. Yeah, definitely. I think that's going to be key. Um, you know, if Mark comes out and, and really gives him a good race in Qatar um, or even in Portimao at the second round, I think that's going to be a, a, a big thing that works in Mark's favour, that he's so close so early on. Um, you know, I think Peko kind of knows that he needs to come out swinging he needs to basically assert his authority it sounds ridiculous a ridiculous thing to say but he does in some respects need to assert his authority over the rest of the Ducati riders just to remind everyone that he's number one because although he has it on his bike many would argue that Jorge Martin was faster than him last year and of course Mark is coming across to uh, the Grassini team this year Um, and it was quite interesting that he he was pretty much talking up the the 24 package saying it's it's the best thing he's ever ridden Um, and he's you know, feeling as confident as he ever has done. Um, while I think it was Enea Bastianini and Jorge Martin, the other guys on the GP24, obviously Franco Morbidelli was missing again from the Qatar test due to uh, recovery from concussion. Um, those guys were talking about um, some rear chatter issues, which were kind of upsetting them. Now, it didn't look like it really upset Bastianini too much if you look at the time sheets. Um, but he was saying that during his longer, I think it was his sprint simulation on Tuesday evening, um, that he was uh, finding this sprint simulation look really, really fast from what I could see. In fact, the fastest of anyone that did a full distance sprint simulation. Um, but Martin was um, 
was sending. He basically had to abandon his his simulation because of this uh, this chatter issue that he was having on the rear of the bike. So I'm not sure if that's a consequence of the new, obviously the new uh, fairing they've got and they're, they're running this year. Um, just a few teething issues that haven't quite got their setup absolutely on point. Um, but yeah, it definitely seemed like for Martin um, that his enthusiasm was dimmed just a little bit by the kind of the end of the day because I think preseason up until that moment had been going had been going almost perfectly. Yeah, I mean, one of the things which I find most remarkable about uh, both tests really is, as you said, Ad, the times have just been astonishing. They've been so much faster. But it, it, it's not just down to the bikes. It's not just that, the, that this year's bikes are so much faster than last year's bikes. Because if you look at um, uh, you know, if you look at who is fast, Mark Marquez was fourth quickest, and he's on last year's bike. Raul Fernandez is on last year's bike. He was fifth fastest. Uh, Fabio Di Gianantonio and Marco Bezzecchi eighth and tenth on last year's bike. So there, there's definitely something going on, and I'm actually quite intrigued to find out or to try to figure out what it might be. You know, why is everyone so much faster? Is it just the the, the, the track is sort of coming in? Because um, Qatar has been resurfaced. It, it, certain tracks sort of, age, they improve with the age uh, a little bit. They... But once they first start, they need to be sort of like rubbered in. They need to be get. They need to get sort of um, be, get cleaned up. Have the the the, the sharp edges taken off of them, and then they get faster, and then they decline slowly. Um, so maybe the, the both Sepang because Sepang also had you know sizable sections of it resurfaced. Um, maybe that's what's going on here. Maybe Michelin have found something with the tire, just a slightly better match. Obviously, we've got a, we've got a better front tire that will also make a uh, make a difference. Um, maybe people are just getting better and having to find more in themselves as the bikes get closer. But it, that, to me, I find that quite a fascinating question. Why is this happening? I also wonder what kind of track state we'll find when we go back for the Grand Prix. I mean, of course, you have to add Moto2, Moto3 and all that Pirelli rubber. But then um, it was quite unusual to arrive in Parking One on Monday um, in, in the La Salle International Circuit. And the first thing we saw was a load of uh, kind of supercars uh, because... Um, and the teams were complaining about this to a degree because everybody has to pack up the stuff and lock it away due to the World Endurance Championship having a round at the La Salle International Circuit before the Grand Prix. So otherwise, the MotoGP teams would have left everything in the pit boxes already set up and then they would have saved at least half a day's work in returning for the Grand Prix. But this time they had to clear everything off ready for the cars. And that means, I don't know if this event in Qatar is a 12 hour or a 24 hour or what happens, but you'd imagine that they're gonna be cleaning up the track considerably. And it was still shocking for me when I had a, a walk around both on Monday and Tuesday to see when riders went off the line, how much crap and roost was being sprayed up, um, you know, away from the main sort of racing trajectory. I think Jack Miller was saying that uh, he was following Brett Binder for a section and, and when Binder sort of moved moved aside, went off the line. He was throwing up all sorts of crap around his neck and was bouncing off his visor. So uh, he kind of made a welcome back to Qatar sort of gesture. But uh, yeah, there we go. Listen, point number two, based solely on Sepang and Qatar, which I know is largely pointless when we're trying to forecast things for this season. Um, who's going to be the surprise package of this year? Neil? Um, it's a good question. I'm not really sure 
if you could call this guy a surprise package because he had such a strong end of 2023. But I think Fabio Di Gian Antonio, his performances at uh, both Sepang and in Qatar, I've kind of suggested that he's um, he's maybe in a, a perfect place to perform like a, what Marco Bezzecchi did last year. And that's, you know, win a couple of races, um, be a consistent threat, um, maybe be somewhere in the running for the top three in the championship, maybe even challenging the best guys in the championship. I don't know. I think that's maybe a bit far-fetched, but um, certainly outside the kind of the big names that we're expecting to fight at the front, you know, Bagnaia, Bastianini, Martin, Mark Marquez, and maybe Brad Binder, and maybe one of the, the Aprilias. I think Digia has shown, especially on his longer runs, um, in both Sepang and in Qatar, that, um, that yeah, he is going to continue on basically where he left off at the end of last year. And where he left off at the end of last year was the basically the third fastest guy if you take the points scored from the Japanese Grand Prix onwards in the final seven GPs. Digio was the, the third highest scoring rider behind Banyaya Martin. Um, and I just liked his comments yesterday, how kind of mature he is. You know, he said he, he kind of went for a time attack, um, didn't quite get his strategy right, didn't... Um, go for a time attack at the absolute perfect time of the day, but said, you know, it doesn't really matter. He was more focused on doing his longer run, his simulation at the end of the day. And yeah, his times in that were very, very competitive indeed. Um, I mean, I said earlier that Bastianini looked like he was maybe the fastest guy over a distance along with Alessio Spargo, but Digio wasn't far away either. So um, yeah, I would uh, I would go for the number, number 49. Neil, it's heartwarming to see what a Digio fanboy you've become. You know, all that cynicism of last year, it's just been washed away by, you know, this positive glow of admiration. Um, I agree with you. And I think, you know, uh, is it fair to say that Digia's benchmark or reference has to be the speed or results of Luca Marini? I mean, he has to be aiming for that kind of perennial top five sort of presence, right? I mean, just to prove to VR46 that he was the, the right man to hire. I think so. Yeah, I think um, I think that's a pretty good... I think that's a pretty good um, aim for him to go into the season with, but I honestly think that he'll, he'll probably be even higher than that. As I said, I think you know what Bezeki did last year. I think um, I'm not saying that he can be as high as third in the championship, but I, I certainly expect him to maybe win a couple of races and um, and and be you know a podium threat at uh, at a couple of rounds. So yeah, Marquez aside, I think you know Digi is the the other guy on the. The GP23s, although you know Bezeki was also looking a lot stronger in Qatar than he was in um, in Malaysia, um, but yeah, I just uh, I like the way Digi is going about his business and the fact that he's just kind of fitted perfectly into that team, despite not really being a ever being a VR46 Academy member. Um, you know, I think it bodes very well for his season. Uh, I'm going to take this question on a slightly different way because I was looking at. I mean, when you when you asked this in the group chat, I had a sort of think about it and I had a look at some of the uh, some of the, the some of the timesheets and all the rest of it, and you look down the list of names, and there aren't any bad riders anymore. You know, all of them can win races, so it's difficult to say. You know, who's going to impress? Because you, I mean, there's nobody who's really going to, uh, no one who's really going to sort of surprise by being successful. So I'm going to come at it from the opposite um, uh, from the opposite end. I mean, I think my surprise is going to be how poorly Maverick Vinales is going to do this year. Um, he has struggled in the test. Um, he can't get the, he can't really get the bike to stop. He, 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 it's not really responding the way that he, that he wants. He didn't like it in, uh, in Sepang. He liked it a little bit, uh, a little better in Qatar. 
Um, and I think he's going to be in for a really tough year, and especially once we get to, shall we say, Jerez, when um, we start, w- once you start to get the first sort of chat about uh, uh, about contracts and the future and all the rest of it, uh, I think that's the point where some riders are going to start getting nervous. And I, we know that Maverick is incredibly talented, just incredibly fast. On his day, the fastest guy on the grid. Um, but he's also really easy to upset. He's really easy to get distracted, to lose it, to go sort of for, for everything to go sideways for him. And I think that um, my guess is that this is going to be a bad season for Maverick Vinales. So congratulations to Maverick Vinales, your 2024 MotoGP champion. <laughs> exactly, because he hasn't topped any preseason test either. Well, he, well, he did actually top Valencia. We should give him that. Um, but yeah, Sepang in Qatar has been very poor by his normal exceptional testing standards. Um, yeah, just... Uh, Something to add there, Dave. I thought it was quite interesting that Massimo Rivola, the CEO of Aprilia Racing, after the Aprilia launch just ahead of the Qatar test, was talking about Maverick. He wants to see him kick on from where he left off at Valencia, which was pole position, and you know, in in play for basically a victory or maybe maybe a podium. And he was like, "Yeah, I expect Maverick to be up there winning pretty much straight away." And that's quite a lot of pressure to put on your rider's shoulders. And I'm not sure if he was meaning that as a bit of a you know, kick up the backside or just trying to instill some proper confidence in, in a rider that's not been feeling at his most comfortable. Um, but yeah, those are those are those are pretty high expectations. And we know Aprilia have not been putting lots of pressure on Maverick up until now. But um, yeah, this is this is the time to deliver. I know we kind of tackled this a little bit on the last podcast, but I, I think we are going to get some surprises from Pedro Acosta. Just watching the amount of laps, um, you know, watching trackside as well, the way that he was attacking some of the corners. I mean, he looks like he's already had a season on a MotoGP bike. Uh, he was talking as well at the end of play on Tuesday, just saying how he was really getting to grips with all the, the intricacies of riding the bike, you know, with the electronics, the levers, the settings, the buttons, everything. And something that Mark Marquez is still trying to adjust to on the Ducati after 11 years on a Honda. So I think Acosta has had pretty much a perfect preseason in showing that he can adapt quickly, he can learn quickly. Um, the hype is there, but it's not, you know, crazy as if he was second, third, fourth fastest. And, you know, he's using you know, the other KTM riders like Jack Miller and, and um, Brad Binder and, of course, his teammate as sort of markers. And I think he's already you know, doing a pretty good job of getting close. Aside from that, and this sort of leads on to point three from Qatar, um, I quite like the look of Ralph Fernandez. I mean, he's using last year's Aprilia, which we know had its flaws at certain circuits. But then, Neil, don't shake your head at me on the video. Uh, you know, he's using a bike that, you know, is proven in some aspects and some circuits and, uh, he's nursing three fractures. He said he's, um, he's touch and go, whether he's going to be hundred percent fit for the first Grand Prix. And he was, he was able to be quick when he wanted to, um, you know, race simulations or whatever else question marks remain. But, uh, anyway, like I said, that leads on to the third point. And my question to you both, I don't know who wants wait, to tackle uh, it first. Oi, oi, oi. Is, wait, we're, we're no, not, what, you can't just, you can't just right. throw in Ralph like Fernandez. That. Yeah. No, no, you he's can't just back. throw in Ralph Fernandez. No, he's coming back. <laughs> point three is no. can we trust the brilliant to have made a forward <laughs> step? So there you go. Now you can I'm, go I'm on. I'm going to insist on interjecting here. <laughs> But who was fastest on the Friday at Qatar last year when nothing really mattered? Ralph Fernandez. And where did he finish in the race? Anyone? Uh, 17th. Uh, yeah. 
How many excuses do you want? You know, he's young, he's got another year of experience and has people that believe in him. He desperately needs a comp. He desperately needs a contract. He really has to uh, has to do something. He has to show something. He has to show something early in the season. So he's pushing himself. I actually think there is sometimes there is a a, a bit of a paradox. Riders will injure themselves and they'll come back and they'll actually be much faster than previously while they're still injured because they're riding much more carefully, much more cautiously, less. They're taking um, more considered risk. Ralph Fernandez was saying, "Look, I, I can't afford to hurt myself, so I was I was being careful not to crash." And I think that that's one reason for being. Um, he is actually riding better. I think injured riders can ride better when they're injured, you know, because they're having to think about it. And I think that's what's going on with Ralph Fernandez. And I expect to be not uh, not surprised by Ralph Fernandez at all uh, when he finishes sort of 21st in the championship. Well, let's let's hold on. This is not quite the, the predictions and preview show just yet. But listen, the, the point about Aprilia, I think, is very valid because Alessia Spargaro looked incredibly strong. He was also very happy with what he had um, in, in the, um, the RSGP 24. Uh, you know, Marie Bignanes, as we've discussed, it's somewhat of an enigma. Miguel Oliveira struggling on the new bike. Trackhouse have that fresh machinery, but he just couldn't get it to work in the faster turns. And then, of course, you have, you know, Ralph Fernandez, who could be this outlier. I mean, I think the question over how competitive Aprilia can be and whether they've really rectified any of those flaws from last year is a, is a, a very valid one. Yeah, I mean, to me, it does look like the Aprilia, the the twenty twenty four Aprilia, is a better all round package. It does look more competitive. They've still got things to do. The, the one thing which Alessia Spargo was complaining about was talk about acceleration. Um, you know, he, he just feels that he they can't accelerate the way that he wants to accelerate. Um, but the rest of the bike, he was pretty he was pretty impressed by. It. He was very happy with it, and his his pace was good. His single lap pace was good. Um, he's looking very confident, and he's sounding very relaxed and calm as well. Um, now, you know, once people once we go racing, things tend to change. So we'll, we shall have to see. Um, and but again, I think much more important or significant in terms of Aprilia's uh, uh, results will be how well organized they manage to be because Aprilia have a they have form for tripping themselves up and making making things very difficult for themselves you know they they're still going to have this issue with engine heat they're still going to have this issue with um uh, i mean you know what happens when we get to to the flyaways and they suddenly find out that they're uh, they haven't bought enough parts or they bought too many parts or they uh, they haven't got the right parts um they're prone to making these kind of mistakes which i think is a that's just experience um it, you know doing it again and again and again season after season um so i you know there, there's room to grow there but i think that you know that they they do this it Alicia Spargaro, was it at Mategi, and not last year, but the year before, where they forgot to take the um, the fuel map off? That kind of that kind of uh, mistake is just typifies a brilliant. I think that is the biggest risk. I think the biggest risk. I think the bike is great. I think the biggest risk for uh, Aprilia is organisational. Yeah, I think um, I think that you know you could definitely see that. Uh, Alice was a big fan of the bike um, during the during all of the preseason. Um, I think he was saying 
comments to the tune of this is this is the best bike he's ever ridden the most competitive bike he's ever ridden um and you know he was complaining about the time attack capabilities of the rsgp um but he finished third overall so um i think he was expecting it to be a massive jump um from the times he was posting during his uh, his race simulation to what he did um and it wasn't quite as big as he had hoped but it was still very very competitive um you know it looks as though this new aero package that they're running with lots of downforce gives him tremendous stability more stability than ever um as dave said there's still a few issues where they're not quite as competitive as ducati exit and turns with their acceleration um but overall it's um yeah it's definitely pretty positive so um yeah lace was saying things to the effect of um this is the most excited i've ever been going into a season um and i'm not sure i would i would fall short from Colin Alish like a title contender but I do think he's on course to potentially replicate what he's been doing over the past couple of seasons which is um occasional victor um occasional challenger for victories but yeah I I, I would stop short of saying that they're going to be fighting for the championship typically uh well-grounded and rounded um judgment there Neil um couldn't have voiced it any better I think you got it spot on but listen we talked about Maverick Mignales and Ralph Fernandez and the Spaniards are two riders that benefit from Alpine Stars's tech air airbag technology in an effort to explain how and why the protection has surfaced in MotoGP and has been mandatory for six years uh, we went straight to the firm to ask media manager Chris Hillard and uh, here's a special feature interview with him and about the story of the airbag Chris, thanks for agreeing to talk to us about Alpine Stars' story of airbags. Uh, it's something we wanted to bring up, a, you know, a couple of times here on the podcast, and um, the company in particular have a, a rich history in terms of bringing the product to MotoGP. I think it's five years now; it's uh, five seasons that it's been mandatory in the MotoGP class. Um, tell us a little bit about how essentially what was a boot manufacturer, um, you know, Alpine Stars has a huge, huge presence now in motorcycle racing, but how did the, the story with airbags and that whole strand of technology start? Because it must have been quite a big pivot for the company to invest in that direction. Uh, yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, here we are, 2024, uh, beginning of, and um, it was 2018 when airbags became mandatory across all the classes. but. Uh, as a as a department, um, I guess Tech Air started back in about 2001, 2002, if you can believe it. And uh, uh, you know, and back then it, it wasn't sort of the department it is now. That's for sure. Um, uh, you know, back then it was kind of like a, a sort of special projects. Um, uh, just a couple of people involved in it, and even then, the information about what we're developing wasn't readily known to to everybody. It was kind of privileged information and what we were doing. Um, I think the department started in about 2001, but in 2003 is when we really started ramping up data logging. Uh, and at the time, I guess, unless you were directly on the project, uh, us that were racing just knew we were logging data to understand riding behavior. And we didn't necessarily know that it was leading towards an airbag. You know, it was a very privileged information project. Um, and uh, and that was just a major part of the beginnings of it was, was all that data logging we were doing. I mean, you talk about a privileged sort of project. I mean, just from the product development you've got going on now, do you reckon it was quite difficult to sort of keep that sort of stuff a secret back then? 
Uh, I mean, back then, it, you know, it's easy to think about it now in 2024. Um, but back in the early 2000s, the idea of an airbag for motorcycle racing, especially like an autonomous one that was electronically controlled with, uh, you know, GPSs and sensors was 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 quite an alien concept. Um, and so what it what it took, I think, at that time was, uh, you know, some some visionary foresight, really, to to look at that type of project and commit to it um, and commit to making it happen, which you know um it, it, yeah a few people knew about it um but even i think the riders when we were first data logging didn't know it was going to be for an eventual airbag you know we were just sort of trying to understand riding behavior from a data level so it was um, a case of sticking some wires in a hump and say guys yeah. we're just recording what's going on the the early data logging system we were putting i, I think there's about 90 sensors inside the suits or so it's just like a whole maze of cables and uh everything there i think there's still some photos that we've got on the file of john hopkins looking like a tad uncomfortable um but you know he was a great example of somebody that was you know really um open to the data logging and to the project and it always starts with people that are willing to sort of get it get involved in it and have the trust that you know we're we're, we're doing something that'll be worthwhile in the future um We've always had a pretty big race program. Um, and so, you know, there's always athletes within that that we can rely upon for that type of assistance. Even if they don't know what the end goal is, they know that it's going to help towards something. I can't help but feel as we're sitting here at the Qatar test, bikes going around in the background behind us, that there's probably some Alpine star suits on track now with some magical sensors in it producing stuff for the future. But I'm not going to put you on the spot, but I I mean, it's you guys use um, your development in racing almost as like a part of the marketing campaign. You know, you really use the top guys and their the hours they're putting in, the skills they're putting in to develop this stuff. I mean, when the iberg was first coming, you know, to prototype stages, were you able to use MotoGP guys or was there a lot of skepticism about, you know, taking this kind of technology on board with them when they're racing? Oh, we've always, I think Alpine stuff we've shown and even just in recent times as well that, you know, we always like to sort of um, launch these projects and launch this development with the best athletes uh, that we can in the world. You know, with the SR10 helmet that we uh, launched on track last year, the first ever competitive race for that was with MotoGP riders, which is... And it was the strategy with the airbags back um, in the sort of late 2000s when we had the final system, well, not final system, but like a track-ready system um, that was in MotoGP. First at testing, and then we were able to implement it at races, I think, during the 2009 season. Uh, we had it on track at MotoGP weekends. Um, and it's just always been the strategy of Alpine Stars as much as, you know, it, it can be quite daunting because what you're looking at there is proving a concept, but with all the eyes of the world on it. Um, so it's it's quite intensive, but at the same time, time and time again, it's always been of great value uh, in order to get that level of feedback and input about it. I mean, you've worked around athletes for decades now they are sort of creatures of habit really uh, they don't like to change particularly if things are going well um, in their sporting careers so was there any kind of riders that were hesitant to, to using an airbag or maybe had a little bit of um, I don't know just a reluctance to maybe embrace the technology I think yeah that's a that's a that's a, 
I mean, again, part of like having like a big race program is that we're and, and we work very closely with each of our athletes to sort of understand what what they're looking for, what their goals are, how we can help and also how we can, you know, just make them as comfortable as possible. So in the early stages of development for this, it wasn't for everybody. And if I if I think back to when the project launched and in fact like last week i was driving from like death valley back to vegas with keith dowdle who was who's at uh, cycle news and was at american honda for years and years and years and um and we were talking about Nicky hayden uh from 2006 to 2007 like 2006 he won the MotoGP gp championship but then the 2007 bike was significantly smaller. And the incredible thing was we both saw Nicky in January of 2007 when he spent an off season trying to get as lean as possible. And you know, you're talking about the, the, the MotoGP champion who was in amazing shape, trained by Alden Baker. Um, you know, he was in incredible shape, but we were both shocked when we saw him in January around Anaheim one uh, Supercross that he'd managed to lose about 10 kilos or so, or you know, something close to that. He was almost unrecognizable as the guy that won the championship two, three months before. Um, and I say that to say that in, in, in that moment in time, that was the absolute priority of Nicky, was you know putting himself through that uh to try and be as light as possible so um you know introducing an airbag to him in that period where he's just going to see the weight yeah. of that and therefore it's not you know something that yes we want to make it available to him but at the same time you know we figured he'd come to the project sooner or later and so we would never put people under too much undue pressure for it um on the flip side around that time you know we had danny pedrosa on the program we had mika calio uh on the program who weight wasn't such a critical thing for them and actually in the case of danny especially protection was something that you know he was really motivated by um so you know in, in those riders we had really willing participants to try and take the project forward i mean you mentioned danny and mika but was there another rider that was you know fully on board from the first moment like bring this on you know i think it's fantastic i want to help develop it i mean was was there somebody with that completely open attitude that, that helped things along i think yeah through, i mean through the years yeah I, I feel like when it comes to safety and protection products danny pedrosa has been you know very instrumental it's it's why uh he came to alpine stars it's projects that he wanted to work on um and so he was always very willing on it. Um, then there's riders like Carlos Checker, uh, you know, who was uh, about the first guy to ever wear our leather suit, for example. Uh, and he always took a real vested interest in, in technology and developments. But airbags, especially back then, were almost seen as, as, as witchcraft and, <laughs> you know, and, um, and it's crazy to think where they were then because like, let's say the catalyst for the project was the amount of collarbone injuries that were happening in the sport in the early, mid, late 2000s. Um, that, you know, not the worst injury you can get, but you're going to miss the next race and they could really derail a season. Um, and so the initial systems that we introduced, they covered the shoulder and the collarbone. Uh, so the electronics were quite big and quite heavy and then the airbag coverage itself when you compare it to present day now was actually very small, but it covered a key area being the shoulder and collarbone. Um, and so, uh, you know, as the years have progressed with it and coverage has increased, uh, I think you could probably speak to this that, you know, back then, whenever there was a crash uh, with any rider, uh, 
uh, you know, journalists, media would always come to us like, did the airbag deploy? They were really sort of fascinated by the concept, was it? And because it wasn't as big as it is now where you can really visibly see the airbag has, has gone off, there was questions about it. And, um, and so, again, navigating all of that during a development process in the most viewed championship in the world um, was uh, was intensive, uh, but for the greater good, I think it, you know it, it worked out really well. I mean, if I think of some Alpine Stars products, the motocross boots are fantastic sort of feats of engineering, but then the the airbag just took things to another level. And now, of course, you guys have helmet protection as well, but or head protection, I should say. But, you know, was it a case with the airbag in the beginning where the technology was incredibly advanced, but you guys almost had to wait a little bit for hardware and software to, to sort of catch up? Yeah, I think I think in the early stages of it, you know, being an, an apparel company, you know, and then all of a sudden we're an electronics company. Um, I say all of a sudden, it was it was definitely a process. Uh, you know, when, when we look at our tech air department now in 2024, um, everything that's in that system, the electronics, the algorithm, uh, you know, the hardware, everything about it is designed by us, developed by us, produced by us, um, and assembled by us. Um, and so that, that, that's a major part of the achievement is through the years of it, once we proved the concept and once we wanted to move forward with it, um, to just bring every element of it in-house rather than using external suppliers for different elements of it. And, uh, and so that, that, that was a major sort of step in development alongside increasing the coverage of the airbag, um, decreasing the deployment times and, uh, uh, you know, really, as with anything electronic, it's always got to get faster, lighter, better, you know, stronger. And, uh, and that's been the case through the years as well. And it hasn't slowed down a jot since 2018 and, and the technology becoming mandatory you know in fact we've increased our airbag coverage since then um, to the point where now you know the guys in MotoGP uh, they have airbag coverage for their shoulders their ribs their full back and also their hips as well which is uh, an incredible amount of um, of coverage. Were there any kind of obstacles early on in development that you had to overcome? I mean, was maybe the the inflation time the biggest kind of issue? I mean, it, it had to work, it had to work reliably, and it had to work quickly, really, to, to protect these guys. Yeah, I mean, it, it all came from, you know, building the algorithm and getting all of that data. Um, uh, and so it took. that's probably what took a lot of years, was to be able to build an algorithm that, that, that could, you know, operate at the level that it needed to you know when you think about it as well like these guys uh, a high side is probably the easiest crash to protect for with a with an airbag because you do have some airtime, you do have uh, some moments but actually the fact that they can deploy before a shoulder hits the ground on a low side considering they corner it between like 52 and 58 degrees uh, lean angle is a is a huge achievement on itself and uh, the software is so sophisticated now that it really can tell the difference between you know what what's what's good cornering and and what might be problematic for people that don't necessarily know so much about how it works or what it is i mean if we take Pekka Bagnaya's you know suit for example what what is the what kind of constitutes the airbag I mean we're we looking at cylinders and able to discharge the, the the actual protection itself I mean what kind of um you know structure is there it's probably like three 
important bits of a airbag system. Like one is the electronics, and by electronics, I'm including like the the gyroscope and the sensors and accelerometers in that, and that can be located inside the hump or um, in the back protector, let's say, of a, of a system. Um, then there's the bag itself, uh, basically. Um, and then on top of that, like where the real weight of an airbag system is, is in the argon gas canister, um, basically that deploys the air into the bag. You know, this is uh, it's an explosive device, you know, effectively, um, and it has to have such an amount of compressed air in it that it has to fully inflate the bag well, uh, within 25 milliseconds, basically. I, I mean, I know you fired, what I wore an off-road one where you managed to fire at me. It was a very unpleasant experience just standing there, especially people watching. That was, um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's it's a very rigorous piece of kit. I mean, it's, it's doing a, a very sort of functional job for the athletes that are using it. I can imagine, you know, when you're flying through the air, just to have that thing firing is a real sense of sort of security. But um, I, I, I mean, just talking about progression of the technology, Chris, I mean, if you, you visualize the first kind of airbags in the suits, you know, the first editions, first generations around Nicky's time, around Danny's time when he first came into the Premier class to now, I mean, are we just talking about size or is there something on the materials themselves that is a lot more resistant, a lot better? What's, what's the main difference? Yeah, I think, the, the, you know, everything has incrementally improved since those days. You know, when we introduced it to the track, it was uh, groundbreaking, um, durable. Everything about it functioned really well. But if you can imagine as the project has gone through through the years, you know, to this day, for example, every crash that happens in any class here in the GP paddock, in the superbike paddock or anywhere where there's airbag coverage, the data is downloaded, you know, and, and there's a crash report made on every single crash that happens. Um, and the, the data that comes from that, you know, it goes into feeding the algorithm more. So as the years have gone by, you know, what we've got with a comprehensive program around the world that we've got, and not just with like professional racers, but anybody that returns their airbag to us, be it from the street, be it from the track, we take that opportunity to download the data. And, and what it gives us is this, incredible amount of information and understanding of crash dynamics it probably needs a new name because technically it's not really a bag anymore is it i mean with the comprehensive sort of coverage of the body that the you know the alpine stars unit provides it's it's i don't know it's, it's massive like you say yeah the yeah the, like i said the coverage of it and things like the you know the system the gp riders use here which is kind of very similar um to the tech air 10 that you can you can you can buy in stores um it's an incredible amount of coverage because, like I said, in, in 2009, um, we were just covering the shoulder and the collarbones. But the, but the fact is with that, you know, in 2018, it was such an important step in airbag technology when the FIM had seen such a drastic reduction in collarbone injuries specifically, but also, you know, shoulder injuries and upper body injuries that it, it just made perfect sense to make the technology mandatory. Uh, by by that time, it had proven itself time and time again, and, and and so that was just a major milestone in that development when it was recognised that way. And that's just, you know, in in world championship road racing, it was a very much shorter arc in Dakar Rally, for example, where, you know, we first had a system there, I think, in about 2018, 2019. Um, 
but already by 2021, they made it mandatory uh, at the Dakar rally for everyone on a bike and quad to, to use the technology. It replaced neck braces, I think, right? I mean, neck braces, I think, were mandatory as well on the Dakar for a, for a while, a year or two. But now, like you say, airbags are there as well. You have to imagine it's only a, a matter of time. I, mean, I know you guys have been sort of gathering data in off-road and motocross, I mean, for almost 10 years now. So, I mean, off-road riding is uh, much more complex or much more diverse in terms of the moments or the accidents you can have. So it must be a bigger field to, to sort of penetrate in that way. But, I mean, you mentioned sort of collecting data and, and the sensors and the gyroscopes and everything that you have. That amount of information that must give you a lot of options as well i mean not just for airbag stuff but for other uses or protection in the suit i mean obviously i don't want you to talk about products that you can't but it must be um liberating and, and useful to have all that stuff yeah i mean as as intellectual property that, that, that we own it's really great but you know first and foremost alpine stars is a uh is a sort of motorsport, motorcycling. If it's got to have wheels, you know, and and then and then we're onto it. Be it like on-road, off-road, four wheels, um, downhill mountain biking. You know, th this is this is definitely our our wheelhouse. So, as uh, you know, with the airbag systems that we've made for road motorcycling. Uh, to what we've done with the tech air off-road and, and, and rally riding and, and enduro riding um, with that system that's, that's being released now to, to the public. And then on top of that, it's been no secret, we've been developing a motocross system. Uh, we've been data logging uh, downhill mountain bike World Cups as well. Um, so, you know, we're really sort of feeding our core of activities and if you have this technology and if you have this um, then we then we owe it to ourselves to really try and find a solution in each of the categories that we follow where it could be beneficial so i mean it's just over half a decade that it's been you know prevalent in MotoGP airbag technology but also in that same same time frame you guys have brought out versions for the public and for people to wear on the road there's now what three there's how many different versions do you have for for riders on the street there's yeah i mean now, now as far as like a consumer product um let's say the family right now there's tech air 3 there's tech air 5 there's tech air 10 and there's tech air off-road um, you know, and then before that was Tech Air Race and Street were the first sort of integrated into the suit systems. Um, and then we also have Tech Air 7X, um, which is basically the new Tech Air Race and a really universal product that, that can be used in conjunction with any Tech Air compatible system that will come out next year as well. Um, but the fact is with it and with the project, you know, from even just a few years ago where the question would have been along the lines of should I use an airbag to now the question is, okay, which airbag suits my needs best? And, uh, you know, from Tech Air 3, which is more of a you can wear this jacket underneath or over a jacket it's quite you know easily foldable it doesn't have a built-in back protector for example so it's quite packable so we sort of yeah it's almost like a vest you yeah know, it's uh, quite you yeah know, that's it and and, it, and like i said it can be it can be worn over the top of something so or it can be worn underneath it, it, it's it's really quite uh easily usable and we sort of gear that more towards like commuting or you know that daily motorcycle riding just popping to the shops and throwing it on type of type of riding tech air five is very versatile like it's a vest that wears underneath the on the app you can have a, a track function or a street function um 
Tech Air 10 has the same things, but it's more geared towards like the ultimate in track day protection. Um, and then Tech, uh, Tech Air Off-Road has been developed at the Dakar Rally in the same way that we develop the other systems here at MotoGP. I mean, that sort of diversity is fundamental, really, because I think for, you know, a superbike rider or a track day rider, they don't mind the spend, you know, in a race type system, like you say, integrated to a one piece suit. You know, that's just part of the kind of equipment that you need to do that activity. But then for somebody who's a, a casual rider or a commuter, somebody who's, you know, on a T-Max going around the city, then to have like a lighter, smaller, you know, more moderately priced airbag is essential. Yeah, uh, absolutely. And we were trying to sort of have options for all type of rider and then also make the technology available to, you know, like it's also important for us to be able to make the technology available to those that aren't necessarily wearing an Alpine Stars leather suit or a Alpine Stars jacket. God knows why they wouldn't do that. But, um, <laughs> <laughs> but at the same time, you know, it, it's important for us, like it's, it's a piece of equipment that we really believe in uh, the safety of. Uh, and so we don't want to limit it just to, to people that wear, you know, uh, our, our other products as well. In your job, is it still a hard sell, you know, you know, getting people on board with the airbags? I mean, your experiences recently with the helmet, that must have been much more straightforward because people traditionally know what they're getting. OK, you're in educating people about the technology inside the lid. But then the airbag, I think maybe people were still thinking, well, do I necessarily need that? And I, maybe it was a, a situation that's surrounding neck braces as well for a time. Yeah, I think I think with airbags, probably the, the, the best, I guess what, what we've noticed through the years is that year on year, we sell more systems. You know, year on year, our dealers, uh, distributors are, are buying more systems. So I feel like word of mouth is a really strong um, uh, element to promoting airbag safety. So let's say there's a group of riders and one of the riders in that group has a, has an airbag, you're more likely to sell more airbags off the back of people in the group doing that. So for us, it's been really important then to, to take these systems to events, to, to talk to people directly. You know, it's not something that can be really explained well in like good video content or anything like that. You need to be uh, where the riders are so you know our commitment to being at events like ABR Fest in the UK for example um, we were just at London Motorcycle Show with the helmet for you know just just last week with Jorge Martin and um, other events like this where you can actually like communicate with potential users that that seems to be really important when it comes to to airbags. There's a tough part as well been about giving people value for the buck, you know, whether it's a case of resetting the system or giving more than one um, inflation or the way that this, the, the airbag, you know, deploys and then resets. I mean, I guess these are all things also for you guys to develop the project for the future. Mm. I think, I, yeah, I think one of the biggest uh, selling points that we perhaps don't communicate enough is that, you know, with our systems, when you buy a Alpine Stars Tech Air system, that is that is your system and, and you you own it. You know, it's not a subscription based model um, where you where you have to, you know, pay your subscription to continue using the technology like that's your that's your system. And uh, where you would need to service it is, you know, in the event of a crash and and, and you need to uh, uh, change the canister or change the bag, which would happen after I think four four inflations of the bag is when we recommend you change the actual bag itself. Um, and uh, and with all these new iterations of uh, of the tech air systems, 
that we're making. A, we have a really good network of our dealers uh, and distributors having service centers in each territory. Uh, so you don't necessarily have to send the systems all the way back to us at HQ anymore. You can find a local outlet that can do it. And they're all trained by Alpine Stars. And uh, and that's a good, uh, that was a good step forward. But then on top of that as well, with the new systems that we're developing, certainly when it came to you know, the tech air off-road system um, where we want to make it possible for the user to change cartridges themselves in quite an easy way and so it doesn't have to be sent away every time uh, um, you want to recharge it, basically. I mean, four deployments is pretty good, really. I mean, if you come off a bike, you know, you would expect to be ditching your crash helmet, you, you know, you're going to be sort of uh, resetting or replacing kit, whereas, you know, if the airbag's going to work up to four times, then that's that's pretty good value. Yeah, and it's, I think it kind of is, it's funny because we, we're a bit desensitized here at, at the MotoGP paddock because it's been normalized that you might want to have like a big crash, jump straight back on the bike and then potentially crash again. You know, that's why we offer uh, two charges to each rider. It's not something that we enforce that riders have because obviously the extra weight of two charges is something we offer, but it's up to the rider to really want to want to have that. Some do, some some don't. Um, but just the concept that you want to get back on the bike as quickly as possible and potentially be, you know, protected for a for a second crash. Um, it sounds normal to us because we're here, but the reality of that, you know, like generally you might sort of catch your breath a little bit if you crash on the on the street or <laughs> or do something there. Uh, Chris, do you think it's fair to say? Alpine Stars can consider themselves pioneers in this field. I mean, the, the product that you guys offer and the coverage that you have on the MotoGP grid, I mean, there doesn't seem to be a company with such a you know, forceful name when it comes to airbag technology. Yeah, I think I, I, I honestly think we can, you know, off the back of and obviously we're not the only company that, that, that produces this technology. And it's it's been a space race through the year, but it's just been ultimately like a really positive project all around because what we've been doing, um, you know, everybody that, that has a system is improving rider safety. So, you know, that in itself should be, uh, I think, should be sort of celebrated. Um, but where the pioneer uh, area comes into it, I think we've consistently, you know, pushed the envelope as far as coverage, you know, to the point, like I said, with what, what, what the guys are using now and what we offer with our Tech Air 10 system um, in having, you know, coverage that even extends to the hips. And, and if I think about a recent instance where that was really important was the Peco Banyaya crash in Catalonia last year. You know, before he got uh, he got hit in the legs uh, by another bike, he he landed really really heavy on his on his hip, um, but of course the airbag had already deployed, so you know he didn't have to take that force directly. Yeah, it's hard to think of a, a form of protection that's had that much impact. You know, in, in motorcycling in general, apart from maybe the crash helmet, but uh, you know, or maybe to the stretch you could say a back protector but um the airbag and um, what it's achieved you know in, in the time that we've okay you could say in MotoGP recently there's been less high sides certainly compared to other eras of the sport but then you know thanks to the progression of electronics and whatever else i mean we're not seeing so many of those types of crashes anymore um compared to you know like i said but you know yeah the airbag has i think been one of the major sort of breakthroughs in this sport yeah, I think I think through the years, um, I wasn't you know so involved in the industry in, in in the 90s at all or anything. But I'm led to believe that you know the implementation of back protectors as a really sort of universal key piece of protection in the 90s is very 
similar to how airbags are viewed now you know and, and from the early days of the project where there were there was a um something of a battle to convince people to use technology and it can be beneficial to now the feedback that we get from riders and you see it during sessions when they crash um before they go back on track you know they want to make sure that they've got a charged airbag um, for where anytime they're on the bike. So now in the way that you would feel naked without a back protector, you know, these guys feel um, underprotected without a functioning airbag when they get on the on the bike. I have a lame confession. Uh, when I did my first sort of track experience and I rode a KTM Super Duke in their launch, I think it was 2020, I was right using a, a, you know, a tech air system. And to have those blinky lights going off on my jacket as I rode out of pit lane felt super cool. I mean, you know, that that's like a mark of a, like a MotoGP star, surely, you know, having those kind of little, uh, you know, little electrodes going off at you. But it's uh, it's, it's just become something that we're, we're commonly associating with riders now. I mean, I was telling you only last year, you know, when Peko Bagnai is sitting in a press conference for, and or talking to media for the better part of 45 minutes an hour, and he's kind of crossing his legs and just looking incredibly comfortable in a leather suit. I mean, the, the fact that that whole system's inside it as well is, is um, really impressive stuff. Yeah, and, and I think that's like one of the key parts of the airbag technology because once you have the software, once you have, you know, everything functioning well, you've also got to make it, you know, comfortable and usable. We go to countries where it's a really high temperature, um, you know, you're sweating a lot and like you can't escape the fact that, you know, that's something that's not going to let a lot of air through, you know, where possible in the gaps between, you know, where, where, where the actual air goes, we can try and have like these little escape vents so at least air can escape the body, you know, a lot, a lot of work has gone into making an airbag as ventilated as possible, but it's almost like an oxymoron to, you know, to, to think about it, but, um, but that comes a lot from the feedback that we're able to get from the riders that, that use it to you know it's one thing to have something that works but it's got to be usable and comfortable uh chris we've no we've thrown enough hot air at you so listen <laughs> thanks ever so much for talking to us about the tech air thank you thanks for having me guys we've got some call back in again from fly racing this year the guys at fly have some brilliant off-road riding gear whether it's the kinetic or the evo dst worn by some of the most recognizable names in supercross and featuring the innovative boa ratchet for the perfect fit their revel roost guard offers premium body protection and has been developed by motocross and supercross racers also the compulsory shout out for the formula helmet um if you're watching on the youtube then there's one right over my left shoulder just there uh, especially the s version as one of the most advanced and best performing lids on the market as i mentioned i've got one and it's the only helmet i will wear on the dirt okay back to the qatar talk and point number four uh, this is a bit of a two-parter and we sort of touched on it a bit neil meant you were mentioning it earlier um Ducati seemed to have some rear chatter problems um or even some technical glitches in the case of mark marquez Will that be a big issue for the, the Grand Prix opener at Qatar? And secondly, how much hope can we actually, or rather KTM, how much can they pin on Brad Binder and Jack Miller after what we've seen in the last couple of weeks? Well, I think, tech, well, first of all, Mark Marcus's technical glitches, welcome to being a, uh, a satellite team. Um, these things happen, especially because you are running parts down to their uh, uh you know basically down to their life so that you, you're running down to, to the to the end of their you, you're extracting maximum mileage out of it um especially during testing you've got a bunch of bits and it's usually sort of you know connectors and wires and all that sort of things 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 which are not 
particularly important, um, but can just sort of mess you up if they break. So I, I suspect that that's the sort of thing in a in a satellite team because you can't keep on throwing sort of you know another couple of grand at, at a few more connectors because. Uh, you know they are very expensive connectors, which they which they have to use because of the um, they're basically aerospace connectors, which they which they use. For example, just as an example, there's all these other parts which they're using, which get used to the uh, absolute limit. In terms of Ducati chatter, I mean that's why you go testing. You know, um, chatter is especially rear chatter is, is a particularly difficult thing to diagnose because it be, could be coming in from anywhere. It can be coming from the engine brake, from the clutch. Um, it could be coming from your chassis, from your suspension settings. Uh, you know, maybe they haven't got the cush drive set up properly. Um, it, th- there's so many different different things, different places that this could be that this could be coming from. That it's always going to be difficult to to diagnose. And the other thing is, you know, everyone's got chatter. Everyone's got chatter all of the time. Um, so I, I I think it's something that they can iron out, and it's not going to be a problem. Uh, and Aya Bastianini was complaining about chatter, and Jorge Martin as well. Martin was uh, reasonably happy, but also confused as to, to the source of the problem. Um, he had it more on one bike than the other, so he seemed to be hinting more towards a mechanical sort of problem rather than anything, any kind of glitch in the electronics. But it does throw a little bit of a doubt over their possibilities for, for the Qatar GP. I mean, you imagine it's something they'll phase out or manage to solve in the coming weeks or the coming races, but uh, it does show you know a big question mark i think uh, to a degree and then of course the riders on the old machinery didn't have so much of that issue uh neil coming up to you for the ktm side um just sort of hanging around the team a little bit in qatar it seemed like they were very happy i mean it was undoubtedly the best pre-season that ktm have had in their eighth uh year in MotoGP. um you know they were also under the lap record times have been both in malaysia and qatar but then uh, you know, it just everybody else seems to have lifted the level. So they're kind of back in the same square where they're trying to chase Ducati and make inroads into their dominance, even though they have improved themselves. Yeah, exactly. This is something that Pip Byer was saying uh, last week, I think it was just after the uh, the KTM official launch, where he was saying, you know, we're, we're delighted with the progress we've made. It's just that the level in MotoGP currently is insane and it is difficult to try and to try and keep up. Um, but um, but they, they certainly have made a big step ahead. Um, I liked how you asked Brad pretty much what you just said there, Ad, last night, um, the final night of testing. You said, has this been your best ever uh, preseason so far? Um, and he said, well, you know, last preseason, I wanted to shoot myself in the face and I don't want to do that now. So <laughs> from that very short, concise answer, I think we could tell that things were, you know, thumbs up basically in the in the orange camp. But, but yeah, it does look as though they've kind of addressed everything. They've not had to revolutionize the bike um this winter they've not had to make big changes they had a a a very good base um on which to work from the end of 2023 well of course they obviously brought the uh, the carbon fiber chassis um uh for the final seven races of the year i think it was um and yeah they've made changes to everything they've addressed everything but it's it's been you know little small steps and um you know it looks as though there's there's largely been positives and i don't think we've seen the full we certainly haven't seen the full hand i don't think of the the ktm guys either because um, correct me if i'm wrong but i think binder said that when he did his uh when he did his time attack yesterday it wasn't quite the the perfect moment the, the best part of the day so you you certainly feel that there's had he timed that correctly he could have been up there a bit further um and he had you know, two yellow flags he's been as well, there pretty much every day 
That's what it was. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, two yellow flags during this uh, during this time attack, which obviously um, slowed him down somewhat because I think there were crashes for maybe two of the Honda riders late on. Um, so I don't think we saw his full hand uh, yesterday. Do I think they're 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 ahead of Ducati? No, but I think they're pretty close. And I think in Binder's hands, especially on a Sunday. Um, and, and on a Saturday now, of course, for the sprints as well, I, I do think we're looking at a guy that that should be challenging for victories pretty regularly, pretty much like we saw um, in the tail end of last year. So, yeah, I would say um, not perfect, certainly not Banyaya levels of dominance or, or anywhere near that, but certainly in the in the region that they hope to be. And we know that, you know, Binder always saves something a little bit extra for the races. So I think they're I think they're they're, they're looking pretty good. Uh, Dave, um, Brad Binder finished second and fifth in the last two Grand Prix in Qatar. Uh, you know, the fifth place result, I think, was, you know, his tyre broke up after 10 laps or something like that. I mean, would you would you put like uh, maybe a little bit of money as an outside podium bet this time? Yeah, I mean, I think the Binder is definitely a good bet each way, uh, especially because, as Neil was saying, he's a Sunday rider. You know, he really does come into his own. Uh, on a uh, on a Sunday, um, but I think you can also see the state of where KTM are because I remember I basically wrote KTM off at the beginning of last season and was made to look like an absolute idiot. Um, where, you know, no change there, obviously. Um, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I was made to look made to look stupid by the fact that Jack Miller did ha- had a really good start, and you know Brad Binder ended up having a really strong season. The bike is really good now; it is a solid base. If you look at what Pedro Acosta is doing, I mean, like Pedro is a really special rider, obviously. Um, but the fact that he can just ju- jump on the bike and go is a sign that the bike itself is pretty good. It's pretty easy to uh, it's pretty easy to adapt to. If you can contrast that with you know uh, Revy Gardner and Raúl Fernandez when they first got on the bike, they just had an absolutely miserable time. That is very much not the case now. You know, Pedro Acosta is in a completely different league to those two. Um, but um, even then, the bike is good. Uh, so I, yeah, I, I think there are good things to come from KTM this year. I think they're going to be competitive. Speaking of KTM, head to KTM.com to see the new rundown of the 2024 Dukes, especially the 1390 Super Duke R. The Austrians took the utterly mad and brilliant 1290 and made it even quicker and even madder. I watched the um, the track review, actually, from 44 Teeth of the bike. Uh, good entertainment, as always, by Ali and the guys at Almeria. And um, perhaps not the bike for pottering around places like Barcelona, in fact. But I'm curious to see what the 990 Duke uh, is like for that. Uh, but the 1390 sounds uh, deliciously joyful for any open road. Uh, more information, as always, at KTM.com. Lastly, guys, our final point or final narrative from the Qatar test, uh, who would be the, the top rider from the Japanese factories and, and brands at LaSalle? Uh, it seemed that Yamaha were a bit of a fruity mess, uh, especially when it came to you know electronic setup, even though they showed, again, an improvement in top speed. Um, Joan Zarco, when I asked him whether he would be happy with something like a top 10 finish, at the Grand Prix, he, he, you know, it was like I was offering him a win. I think at that stage, he, you know, that would be a fantastic result. Luca Marini was looking a little jaded. Uh, Juan Mir was slightly erratic, but weirdly positive. And um, I was surprised with Alex Rins, actually, just how much he seemed to still be struggling with that leg. I mean, it must be coming up for, what, nine or ten months since he broke it now. And, uh, of course, a couple of operations. And he said, uh, actually, he had pain while he was at home after the Sepang test. Um, he thought it might just be down to the cold conditions in his residence in Andorra, but um, it is slightly concerning that you know that injury is still affecting him. 
Yeah, I think that's that's fair, Ad. Um, I mean, if going back to your original question, if, if, if I had to pick one of the riders from the, the Japanese manufacturers uh, to, to finish highest up in Qatar, I would definitely say Fabio Quattararo because I think Yamaha um, look like they're in a better position to compared to Honda. Um, we know that their one of their big weaknesses is uh, the, the, the kind of the time attack, the qualifying lap, which is pretty much uh, what we saw last year. And I think in the first couple of races, at least, we're going to see Yamaha have very similar problems to to 2023, where Quattararo isn't able to qualify in the first two, maybe three rows, um, but actually has like decent rhythm, decent pace, um, and will be able to kind of launch mildly heroic comebacks through the field um to finish you know top six maybe um whereas i think the honda guys um you know what we what we saw basically from both honda and yamaha in this test was just a continuation of, of what we saw in sepang um a couple of minor improvements here and there but the issues which were were, were plaguing both factories more or less remained kind of unchanged and, and you know honda suffered um principally i think from a virus that was doing the rounds in the repsol honda garage um through the test i think uh, marini was pretty sick on monday Tranmere was really sick on the tuesday vomited at one point and had to sit most of the uh most of the kind of running during the track time out um they did have um i saw some uh, aerodynamics updates which which i think worked um which all the riders were saying were, were definitely quite a positive thing um but um but yeah they're big weaknesses is obviously traction and that still remains so um yeah it's going to take them some time to to turn those things those deficits around completely um and uh, and yeah i think uh, the same could be said of yamaha but they're they're in a better position now, i think the one thing about uh, about the yamaha and the difference with last year is you know the, the bike is definitely faster um last year Quattararo was a bit of a sitting duck. Like he got stuck behind someone and that was it. That was basically game over. This year, you feel that the Yamaha has um, uh, a little bit more speed, a little bit more pace, and they'll, he'll be able to actually overtake. He won't necessarily be end up being stuck behind bikes. I mean, you know, if you get stuck behind a Ducati, you're stuck behind a Ducati because um, they've got 12 trillion horsepower and um, uh, and, and, and that's, that's just about your lot, really. However... Um, Yamaha is going to be much more in contention. It's going to be in a much better, uh, better situation. And um, yeah, I mean Fabio Quartararo. I, I agree. I think Fabio is going to be the 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 top uh, Japanese um, rider because I think he's also just you know he's one of the best two or three riders in the world. Um, so he's always going to be uh, just outperform everyone. Um, but the thing for me was like there was so much optimism that it sounded from, and this was the same in Sepang. There was so much optimism from both Honda and Yamaha. There's been so many changes. There's so much going on that you feel that um, they feel like they are making progress. The trouble is they've got to catch up, and catching up when Ducati, Aprilia, KTM are at that kind of a high level, and, and um, they keep making progress as well. Catching up becomes really difficult. Yeah, absolutely. Just to put into perspective what Dave was saying there, I think Quattararo was third fastest uh, when you looked at the top speed, the average top speeds on uh, on day two, and uh, Alex Rins was fifth. So that you know it's kind of un unheard of really for Yamaha to be uh, to be that high up. Um, obviously, they're they're still working on some issues with electronics as well, um, and it does sound as though the M1 is still a pretty violent, um, unruly bike. 
um, really kind of out of character from the historic M1 traits that we're used to. And it's been like that for a while now. Um, but um, but you do imagine that they will eventually get a handle on that and kind of make improvements with the electronics. I think Fabio said during the Sapang test that they're they're years behind their rivals in terms of electronics. But then the new the new people that they brought in from Ducati, especially new technical director Mark Spardellini, you imagine that's those are areas where they they are going to make progress. And certainly, um, Quattrao's comments on the first day in Qatar were were just we've got this new working method, we've got these new people, and things are so different now compared to last year and, and that is giving it motivation. So I think, you know, Fabio's, his head's not going to bar this year, whereas this time a year ago, I think he was going into the season thinking, maybe I can, maybe I can be a contender this year. I don't think he's under any illusions and his, his uh, ambitions are a lot more realistic, more in tune with what, uh, what the Yamaha is capable of. Yeah, it was also interesting to see that Yamaha were using that long exhaust quite a lot, um, which should give them a bit more ta- a bit more torque. Should tame the engine a little bit um, instead of having the little short thing by there by by the foot. Um, the riders don't like it because they say they can't hear the engine, which to anyone who's ever stood anywhere near a MotoGP bike sounds completely insane but uh, that's uh, that, that's another discussion altogether. Um, the thing about top speeds, I am wary of top speeds because the bikes are getting faster and faster and we uh, and they are you know they're breaking later and later and we're getting into the the point where braking zones are um where riders are starting to break is it, starting to matter a lot um it's really starting to affect the the the, the different um sort of top speeds which are recorded through the speed traps um so yeah i i think it's I'm starting to think that the top speeds that you're seeing on the timesheets have more to do with accelerate, well, more to do with braking um, and a little bit to do with acceleration than with actual outright top speed. I mean, if you really wanted to know the truth about the top speed, you'd have to look at the data, but no one's going to actually, that's the kind of data that no one is going to actually show you. Yeah, I also think we have to give Yamaha some credit, you know, after so many years of very, very small changes on the M1 or a largely, largely kind of stagnant development for them to suddenly be, you know, ripping the drawing board to bits and trying to come up with some serious upgrades, then, you know, it's not going to happen overnight. I mean, they've had such a sort of stable project for so many years now. And uh, but like Neil says, I think, you know, Fabio is looking the strongest amongst the Japanese Although I will throw it back in your face, Dave, after you pointed out on the group chat earlier that the top Japanese rider in LaSalle is bound to be Takanakagami, um, uh, just by virtue of the obvious. But uh, yeah, never mind. <laughs> the flag next to his name. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Well, listen, guys, um, that's almost it for today. Uh, we're nearly to Fantasy League time with some decent prizes on offer again for 2024 and a care package provided by the Alpine Stars people. We're also giving away two paddock passes to our MotoGP Grand Prix of your choice if you sign up to our $10 Patreon channel for the year at a 10% discount. And we'll be posting the name of the lucky winner drawn out of the hat um, just from a few hundred across the, tar- the Qatar Grand Prix in two weeks' time. Um, we love feedback, so send us some comments on SoundCloud, through Apple, Twitter, or through Patreon. Uh, next week, we hope to have a special interview with none other than Danny Pedrosa. Uh, you better tell Moto Matters contributors uh, Zara Daniela to hold on to her virtual knickers of that one, Dave. Uh, and then we'll have um, another, another memorable guest lined up for our Qatar preview show. So a couple of big podcasts coming up. Um, any final words, boys? Any final comments? Um, no. No, none. No, <laughs> okay. No, I'm, uh, I'm actually... 
I'm actually getting a well. Uh, one, I'm off to Michelin on Thursday for our Friday. They've invited a few journalists to show us around the factory to discuss things. I'm looking forward to that. I had some interesting conversations in in uh, Sepang about that, about uh, you know the importance of data and the and the way they produce things. And I just want to see how they actually make their. Um, uh, make their ties. I think Michelin were quite miffed by all the negative um, publicity they got about uh, Jorge Martin's tyre last year, um, and they want to prove that look, th- th- these right these tyres that roll out of these uh, these machines, they are absolute. They're as as identical as they can make them, and the kind of difference that um, Martin is talking about can't have come from production. It must have come from something else. Um, so yeah, looking forward to seeing that. Yeah. Also the model two, model three official test, uh, is next week in Hareth, which I'll be attending. Um, so our patron supporters, um, can look out for some reaction from that and uh, maybe some interviews that I managed to get, obviously a big, big test because, uh, well, after Valencia at the end of last year, it's a Pirelli tire test, which is going to see some big, big changes I feel in Moto2 especially. So that should be exciting too. And I'm really looking forward to seeing what effect the Pirelli tires have on um, on the MotoGP class. What happens when they start racing after the after Moto2 uh, with a little Pirelli rubber on the track? I don't think we'll see it at Qatar because Qatar's weird in terms of the surface anyway. Uh, but when we get to you know like Jerez, uh, maybe Portimao a little bit, how's it going to affect that? I think that that's really really interesting. Also, listeners, don't forget to look out for World Superbike coverage from Steve. Thanks to Rental Fly and KTM, and we'll be back next Wednesday. <laughs>